to um, Colossians chapter 1. Uh, that's the teaching on which this morning is, this morning, that's the text on which this morning's teaching is going to be based. Um, if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible with you, then there's one on the rack in front of you, and you can find Colossians, Colossians chapter 1 um, on page 1165 of that Pew Bible. So throughout the month of June, what we've been doing is acknowledging and celebrating our 80th anniversary as a, as a church, because it was in June of 1936 that the pastor of First and Central Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Dr. Harold Laird, was removed from his office by the denomination because of his refusal to, to resign from an independent missions board that he was a part of, an organization that was committed to the fundamentals of the historic Christian faith. And the very next Sunday after his removal, hundreds of people leaving First and Central met in a Wilmington home for the very first worship service of what would ultimately become Faith Presbyterian Church. And while they supported Dr. Laird as an, as an individual, their commitment was to something far greater than just a person. Because at the beginning, it wasn't actually all that clear that Dr. Laird would ultimately be the pastor of that church that was going to be formed. In fact, immediately after those events, Dr. Laird went into the hospital for a surgery and spent several months recuperating even outside of, away from Wilmington. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't a commitment to the man, but it was a commitment to, to principles, certain core principles that, that the Bible completely and perfectly reflects who God is, who we are, what's gone wrong with the world, and what God has done to make it right. That the worship of God is the ultimate end for which we were all created. That the Bible is not just history and, and inspiration, but it is what we call gospel, that it's the good news, the good news of a rescue from the consequences of our sins so that we can worship God as we were designed, and, and that the message of God is to be declared faithfully and widely to everyone everywhere as the only way to know God and enjoy Him forever. Those were the principles, and they're not principles that are in any way or were not in any way unique to faith church. But nonetheless, they formed the foundations on which faith was, was built. So what we've been doing through June on Sunday mornings is we've been looking at, at the foundations of, of faith, weaving in some history as, as we kind of go of the, early, of the early church. And we, we've, been, we've looked at the foundation of missions and the foundation of worship. And today we're going to look at the foundation of the gospel itself, the gospel message itself, which brings us back to Colossians chapter 1, which... It's familiar because we already read most of it. It's the same text that we used as this morning's assurance of, of pardon. But just listen while I read it again. This is Colossians chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 21, 22, and 23. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Now, last week, Kevin introduced you to Roy and Bertha Byram. They were both medical doctors and missionaries to Korea in the 1930s. And in fact, they were the very first missionaries that ended up being supported by the newly formed Faith Presbyterian Church. And, and if you remember what Kevin said, this is kind of how it, how it happened. In June of 1936, they were actually here on furlough in Wilmington, staying at the home of Dr. Laird. And they were present at Dr. Laird's trial before the, the presbytery, and they were witnesses to the formation of the, of the new church. And they quickly realized 
that with everything happening, they too would need to leave their former denomination because their core principles, the ones that I just reviewed and outlined, those core principles were no longer, it seemed, in line with the guiding principles of the existing church. So after 15 years of serving with the denomination's board of foreign missions, they left and they joined the independent board with faith's support as faith's first supported missionaries. But what I found fascinating uh, from what, as I was listening to Kevin last week, what I, what I found fascinating is that when they left the denomination, it wasn't just an administration change. It, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't just that they had to get new business cards. It meant that they had to leave behind everything that they had been doing, all of their life's work in Korea. Because as doctors, they had devoted themselves to the medical needs of the people that they served, and they had just finished constructing a brand new hospital in Korea, a hospital that belonged to the denomination and that they would now have to leave behind. And here's what I found fascinating. What would lead them to do something like that? I mean, what would make them do something like that? The Korea of, of, of the 1930s is not the relatively modern state of South Korea today. Do you know how hard it would have been to build a hospital there? Do you know how much need there was for that kind of care? Why, do, why would you walk away over just like a mere doctrinal dispute? I mean, at best, you'd probably look at the Byrams and say they're crazy or foolish. At worst, and, and to the modern person especially, you might look at them and charge them with being uncaring. Right? Think of all the good that you could have done in that hospital with your gifts. Right? Think of all the good that you could, why would you walk away from that? I mean, isn't that morally wrong even? Well, you might, you, might, you might conclude that. You might think that they were crazy, and you might even think that they were morally negligent unless, unless, and I think only unless, unless the needs of the people in Korea and Asia and throughout the world, for that matter, were actually much greater than the medical ones that were presenting themselves. And unless they believed that the message of healing that came, that they came to proclaim, was actually far more helpful than hospitals and medical care. Now, they were doctors. They didn't believe that hospitals and medical care was irrelevant. But the only way you would walk away from something like that is if you believed that the healing that you had to offer was far more significant than what you were leaving behind. In other words, they would have to be crazy or negligent unless the gospel is true. So while in a very real sense the gospel is the message of every sermon here that we preach, we need to look at what Paul's saying here, because we need to ask ourselves that question. Is making the gospel foundational, is that, is that crazy? Is it morally negligent? Or is it true? I, I chose this passage from Colossians because it summarizes the central story of the entire Bible in essentially three verses. It's about as plain, it's about as, plain as you can get it. And Paul himself kind of just, he comes out and says it. He says, in case you were wondering, this is the gospel. Right? You know, if you weren't sure... If you needed a quick summary, in case you were tempted to misunderstand it, here it is. This is the gospel. And Paul breaks it down into three parts, three components that are essential to understand. The gospel communicates to us three things. First, it communicates that we were alienated from God by sin, that we are now reconciled with God by Christ, and that we will be presented to God as holy. Three things. Alienated by sin reconciled by Christ, presented as holy. Right? So first, alienated by sin, 
Verse 21, this is where Paul starts. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Now, when you see the word alien all by itself, you could think of it passively, just kind of like separated, like two people who are just, just different. It would be like when you encounter a different culture or a way of doing something that isn't like the way that you do it, and you say, wow, that idea of doing something, that, that, that concept, that's just totally foreign to me. And that's, just, that's, just, that's just a totally alien concept. Right? And when you say that, you're not necessarily kind of indicating that there's any kind of hostility or animosity or anything like that. You're just saying that there's a difference. But that's not what Paul's meaning by the term alienated here. He means something more like estranged. Separated, yes, but separated by hostility. Right? It, it would be like, like a father and a, and, a, and a child who haven't spoken in years because of anger or conflict in their relationship. The child is alienated from the father, but it's not, it's not just because they live in different states. It's because they're estranged. They're separated by hostility. That's the sense in which Paul is talking about our relationship with God here. As a child is estranged from his or her father, we are estranged from God. We, we know that it means that because it says we were alienated and were enemies. But if you just stop there even you wouldn't know whose responsibility it was for the hostility. You'd say, okay, well, they're enemies, God, humanity, enemies, but you, but you wouldn't know whose fault it was. The hostility could exist, in our example of a father and a child, the, the, the hostility could exist because of the child's disrespect for the father, or it could exist because of the father's abuse and neglect of the child, or, as in almost every case, a combination of the, of the two. But when it comes to God, we know whose responsibility it is because Paul tells us. You were alienated and you were enemies, he says, in your minds because of your evil behavior. Which means that this hostile alienation is our fault. We've made ourselves enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Or, as the translation footnote kind of helps you interpret, in our minds as shown by our evil behavior. In other words, our evil desires which are evidenced then by our evil behavior, is the cause of the conflict. It's, it's our fault. Now, this, isn't, this, this is hard to accept because, because calling something evil immediately causes us to, to pause. And it isn't because, I don't, I don't think it's because we find it inappropriate to call things evil. I mean, some, of course, kind of hold to an intellectual position that there's no such thing as evil, there's no such thing as, as right or wrong, but, but I, I actually find that that's not what most people struggle with. Most people don't struggle with calling something wrong or offensive or, 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 or immoral. Where the struggle comes is when the question, of, when, when the question is, asked, okay, well, who gets to call it evil? Who gets to call it offensive? Right? Because, because that's, 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 that's where it comes down to, wait a minute, no, most of the time, what we want to answer is, well, I do. <laughs> I get to decide that. I get to decide. It's not so much whether something is offensive or wrong. It's that we want, we want to retain the right to decide what is offensive and what is wrong for, for ourselves. And that raises the question of who's really in charge here, after all. Because the gospel tells us that it is God from whom we are alienated. And because this is just a summary here that Paul's given, he doesn't unpack the idea in its fullness, but, but, he, but this, is, this is God, he says. The, the one to whom he's referring, the, the, with whom the hostility exists. It's, it's God, the, the one who exists eternally outside of time, the one who is the source of everything, who knows everything, who holds everything together, the one who made the earth on which we walk, the air which we 
breathe, the body in which we live. And if there is a God like that who made you and everything, then it means that we are rightly his subjects. It's a sovereign rule that we have to accept. I've been reading a book by, the former, by a former deputy director of the CIA. Um, he served in high-level CIA positions in um, the Clinton administration, the uh, George W. Bush administration, the Obama administration. And he tells at the time he was, he was working as a job as the official liaison in London between all the, all the branches of the U.S. security services or U.S. intelligence services and the British intelligence services. And one time while he, was, while, while he was in London, while he was serving in London, he received an invitation to attend a dinner and a reception uh, with the queen and with the, with the royal family. And the invitation was very detailed. It had all kinds of information about what they were supposed to wear, what time they were supposed to show up. But the one thing it didn't have on the invitation was any information about how to RSVP, how to reply to the queen that they were planning on being there. And so not wanting to offend Michael Morell, who was the, the name of the of the man. Morell asked some of his colleagues at, at, at British Intelligence, he said, he said, how do I, how do I RSVP? And the response was, well, it, it's not there because you don't. See, when the Queen sends out an invitation, the assumption is you're going to be there. There is no need to RSVP because no one ever denies the request. Now, that's sovereignty. <laughs> right? but, but relative to God, that's sovereignty only in a very limited sense. I mean, if the Queen of England who has, relatively speaking, relatively limited power to actually require someone to do something like that. It, but, but if the Queen of England nonetheless enjoys and expects that level of respect, that level of admiration from people who aren't even from her country, then what right might the God of the universe have to that kind of respect, that kind of honor? See, this is where the gospel can be misunderstood at the very outset. The first misunderstanding of the gospel is that we don't really need it. That whatever is wrong with the world, that whatever is wrong with us, that it's not, it's not really that big of a deal. Nothing that some proper education or, or sensitivity training can't fix. Nothing that, that a doctor or a therapist or a meditation can't, can't address. That's what we think. But that's not, what the go- that's not where the gospel starts. The gospel starts by saying that this is a very big deal. We are alienated from God. And it's our fault. It's our rejection of his rightful rule. It's our desire to do things our own way, to reserve for ourselves the right to tell God who made the universe, to reserve for ourselves the right to RSVP or not RSVP. And if that's truly what we've done, rejected God like that, then we should be very concerned because that's a very big deal. Now, but how is that gospel? How is that good news? It sounds like very bad news. Well, there is a sense, isn't there, in which accepting and understanding the bad news always becomes the ground for understanding the good. Maybe you've had that experience or you've known someone who's had that experience of knowing something that there is something medically wrong with you, but being told by doctors that they can't figure out what it is. Or or even more frustrating, explaining your symptoms to a doctor and and they have that look on their face where they basically just, they don't believe you. When that happens in the midst of the uncertainty and the suffering through an undiagnosed or or misunderstood condition, the start of the good news is finding a doctor who takes your symptoms seriously and who actually diagnoses the condition. Do you see? The gospel is freeing because it looks at the human condition of terrorists, of violence, of poverty, of abuse, and it takes those symptoms very seriously and says that they are a very big deal. You are not crazy. 
Stop pretending. The world is seriously messed up. There's no minimizing it, and you don't need to. There's no amount of, of, of education or sensitivity training that's going to, going to solve it. There's no amount of government intervention from the political left or, or, or individual responsibility from the political right that's going to solve it. And the gospel tells us why none of those things will solve it, because the gospel accurately diagnoses the problem. The problem is not simply ignorance or money or willpower. The problem is rebellion against the sovereign rule of God in our world. And when we understand that, that's actually freeing, because finally, finally I have a doctor who's telling me what I know in my heart, that there's something seriously wrong. But a terminal diagnosis is only ultimately freeing if it's not too late to do something about it. And so Paul continues in verse 22. The gospel is that we were alienated from God by our sin, but you have now been reconciled with God by Christ. Look at verse 22. You have the contrast there between what was and what now is. Verse 21, once. Verse 22, now. Once alienated, now reconciled. Once separated by hostility, now accepted and loved. And here, here we see it's easier to, it's, it's easier to understand the sense of the word gospel here, isn't it? Because this certainly is good news. Hostility, not love. But there is still a, a, a potential for misunderstanding the gospel. And the misunderstanding here usually happens to us as we just very quickly move over, understanding exactly how this hostility turns to reconciliation. In other words, we say that, you say, oh, that's wonderful. And we just, just kind of quickly gloss over it and completely undervalue the reconciliation itself. Even in Christian circles, sometimes maybe especially in Christian circles, we, we, we just get used to it. For example, we look at verse 22, and we, and we see that the way the reconciliation happens is through the sacrificial death of Jesus. And in the church, many of us very, become very, very accustomed to that type of language. I mean, even our children can recite that truth, Jesus Christ died to take away our sins. And that's true. That's, that's right. That's what Jesus did. That's what Paul says. But does that stun you? Does that make you stop and say, wait, wait a minute. What did you say? Did you say that Jesus Christ... The Son of God died intentionally for me? Well, hold, hold on. Is, is that true? Because that's amazing. Right? We, we can't do that. Paul knew, Paul knew we would be prone to miss that, that's why, which is why if you go back to verse 15 of Colossians 1, you'll see, kind of leading into this summary statement of the gospel, that Paul describes who Jesus is so that by the time you get to what he did, you will be absolutely amazed. Look at verse 15. Let's read some of this. Most people believe that this was actually an early hymn in the church because of its poetic tone. This, this is how Paul describes Jesus. For he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authority. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's who Jesus Christ is. The exact image of the invisible God, God himself. The exact likeness and, and representation of God. It's like Jesus himself said in John 14. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am him. I, we, I am God. 
He's the firstborn over all creation. Not, not firstborn in the sense of chronology, but firstborn in the sense of, of primacy. The firstborn son, particularly in the firstborn son of a king, gets the full rights and privileges. That's what Jesus has over all of creation. What he, what he says goes because he made it. He made it all. Makes it very clear. Verse All things created by him and for him. So when you set it up that way, and then you lead into verses 19 and, and 20, when Paul says that God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, making peace through his blood shed on the cross, when you set it up that way, then you're ready to be stunned by the once alienated, now reconciled comparison. When doctors Roy and Bertha Byram made the decision not to, to return to the, the work that they had been doing, to leave the denominational agency that they had been a part of, they not only had to leave the hospital that they had spent years building, they had to leave the home in which they had spent years living. Now, in most cases, in many cases, it can be extremely difficult for children in a situation like this, particularly like they had for two, two, two teenagers. But in this case, it was actually one of the Byram's teenage daughters who summarized it, providing the gospel perspective. Dr. Mrs. Byram reportedly said, she said, writing, she said that, that her daughter told them, we've suffered so little for Jesus. We really ought to be able to give up our home for him. In other words, how comparatively small to leave your home for him when Jesus Christ, the eternal God and King and creator of all things, left his home for you. How do you get that perspective? Only when you're stunned by what Jesus did for you. And he didn't just leave his home for us. He came to rescue us, to reconcile us by Christ's physical body through death. And you know who initiates this here? What's the, who's the subject of, of verse 22? Who does the reconciliation? God does. But who does the alienating? <laughs> we do. Right, so do you see the contrast? The estranged relationship is entirely our fault. The reconciled relationship is entirely God's grace. And on the cross, our reconciliation happens because of Christ's estrangement. Right, consider that on Father's Day. I'm not naive enough to think that this is a happy day for some of you. Right, because many people I know are in a situation where they're either alienated from a father or alienated from a child or separated by death from a father or separated by death from a child. Consider this. The gospel is about a son and his father who lived in perfect unity and joy and love from all eternity. A son and his father who nonetheless willingly chose to be estranged so that we can be reconciled who chose to be separated by death so that we can be united. Are you stunned by that? One last thing. This is where we, because this, this, this is where we often leave off, right here. We just kind of cut off the gospel right here. We're alienated by sin. We're reconciled by Christ. But that's not the end. Because finally, Paul goes on. He says, we are, we are presented as holy. Look again at verse 22. But now let's kind of continue all the way to the end of verse 23. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out in the gospel. Right? See, this addresses the other kind of common misunderstanding of the gospel. Often, the gospel is, is, is just about, is said to be just about kind of in, in old-time religious 
in old-time religion terms. It's just about getting saved. Right? It's, we just kind of say, hey, just getting saved. That's, that's the gospel. But, but see, it's not. That's not, it's not we're, we're not just forgiven. We're presented as holy, without blemish, with, free from accusation. See, the death on the cross of Jesus doesn't just remove our sin. It makes us righteous. We are without blemish and free from accusation. Not only is there nothing for which we can be blamed, no mark, no spot of guilt, but there is no chance of it. There's nothing that we can be accused of. What Jesus presents as holy is holy because he makes it holy. The reconciliation is eternal and it's permanent. The conditional phrase in verse 23, if you continue, is not actually, it's not intended to introduce doubt. Now, the condition is real, the alienation from God. And so the reconciled Christian, this is saying, must continue in his faith in order to be presented as holy, but it's a condition that's expected to be met. All the commentators point out that the, the, the construction of this phrase here in the, in the original language, it doesn't indicate any kind of doubt as to whether or not it will actually happen for those who are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. This is how one of them puts it. The Greek words do not suggest any serious doubt, but rather emphasize a condition without any suggestion that the condition will not be satisfied. In other words, for someone who truly believes the gospel, Jesus assures the gospel's full benefit. It will happen. So, so this is the gospel. You were once alienated from God by sin. You are now reconciled with God by Christ if you put your faith in him. And you will be presented to God as holy. Once alienated, now reconciled, to be perfected. Because of Christ, when you put your faith in him, guaranteed. Now, just some quick implications of what, of what that would mean if the gospel is your foundation. If, if that is the gospel, whether, whether you're a church building on that foundation or you're an individual building on that foundation, what does it mean to build on that foundation? Let me just, just rattle off a few things. What, what does having a gospel foundation mean? Well, it means, we said, right, that you take sin very seriously. You have to. The gospel says sin is, a, is, a, is not a trivial matter. Think about what we've been saying here. If the problem of humanity was minor and easily fixed, then why would you need to send to his death the Son of God? If all we needed was a Band-Aid, some good advice, and a pep talk, it seems a little bit like overkill to me. But it wasn't overkill. It's really what's needed. Sin is that bad. And so when we consider our own lives and we consider the purity of the, of the church, like we say in our membership vows, that's what we're looking Sin is that bad. We should be looking for it. We should be grieved over it. We should be repenting of it. Okay, but the gospel also means that, that no sin is beyond God's forgiveness. Right? So while we never want to diminish the alienation, on the other hand, we never want to diminish the reconciliation. Remember, this is not a Band-Aid. This is not good advice or a pep talk being offered here. Right? Those things might have a limit, only so much you can do. But there is no sin, no rebellion against God that disqualifies you from the offer of reconciliation through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. So don't diminish the reconciliation even as we attempt to not minimize the alienation. Right? That means, therefore, then, next, that the gospel also means that we proclaim it, like it says in verses 23 and 24. We proclaim the hope that's held out in the gospel to every creature under heaven. Of course you would. 
if this is, if this is true, it would, actually, it, would be, it would be immoral. It would be wrong to withhold it. And we do it with humility because we know the extent of our alienation, but we do it with boldness because we know the extent of Christ's forgiveness. Now, finally, the, the, the gospel means that we persevere all the way to the end. When Roy and Bertha Byram returned to Asia, they lived in what is presently known as Manchuria, and as the war clouds began to gather in Asia in the late 1930s, they stayed. Some missionaries left. They stayed ministering along other American missionaries and among a number of Korean Christians there, bringing the gospel to both the Chinese and the Japanese people who were living there. Now, in the fall of 1941, they, they, were, they were given a choice by the imperial government of Japan. Pay homage to the state Shinto religion or face imprisonment. And they chose imprisonment. And they were not alone. Among them, there were more, in, in their, just in their group, there were more than, than 30 Korean Christians who made the same choice. And Mrs. Byram wrote that, that it was humbling to be in the presence of these Koreans because they had endured far more suffering, she said, than they had the Americans, with far less hope of rescue. In other words, as another one of the American missionaries, um, Bruce Hunt, later wrote, he says, I was a citizen of a great country, speaking of the United States, a, a country that might even be able to affect my deliverance. If I made a stand for the right, I could expect at least some human backing. And that's ultimately what happened. They were imprisoned, but in 1942, in February of 1942, the U.S. State Department arranged for a, a swap, an exchange that freed Hunt and the Byrams and some other American missionaries. But what Hunt writes is, with the Koreans, it was different entirely. They were the subjects of the Japanese. No country was going to fight for them. And when a Korean stood for the right in the face of government persecution, he could expect no mercy. And yet, they knew that they had someone who would fight for them, right? who would stand with them to the very end. Hunt told how, how, how when all the Christians were first arrested and they were grouped together for processing, and they went to a detention center, and they were given numbers, and they were given the final opportunity to admit their error and pay homage to the Shinto shrine. And, and, and then, when they refused, they were all shackled together, and they were led out of the building to be loaded into the vehicles that would take them to the prison camp. And outside, as they were being loaded into the vehicles, there, were a, there was a crowd of Korean women and children, the, the wives, the, 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 the children of these men, these husbands and fathers, who were being taken off to prison. And the, and, and these, and the families, they were obviously concerned, but even in the face of armed Japanese soldiers, they were not afraid. And they were shouting to the men, asking them about their conditions and if they were okay. And then, one of the women shouted out above the noise of the entire crowd, Gutkachi, Gutkachi. It's from 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13, and it means, to the end. And the other women and the other children began to shout it too. Gutkachi, Gutkachi, to the end. See, the gospel means that we can stand firm to the end with absolute confidence that our alienation has been reconciled and that God will perfect and carry out what he has promised and what he has started. It means that we have a king who has already rescued us and who guarantees our eternal destination. That is the gospel. The alienated have been reconciled and will stand to the end. Let's pray together. Our Father, we um, stand in awe 
of those who have suffered far more greatly than us, who have had to make choices that are far more difficult than, than us, and yet to them, it's so humbling, the choice didn't seem to be very difficult. And why would it be if we really understand the gospel? If we really understand what you have done for us, then it really isn't a very difficult decision. Why wouldn't we leave our home if Christ left his for us? And so, God, we pray this morning that we would be stunned. God, I pray for anyone who, who maybe has not experienced that forgiveness, who recognizes the, the alienation that they have from God, that they would be convicted of that, but that they would come to the cross in faith and receive the assurance of forgiveness that is offered because of what Jesus has done. And then, Lord, I pray that we would take this, that we would go from this place with this message of the gospel and proclaim it to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.